Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. After a big vote, the impeachment inquiry is going to be public. What should it look like? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. This episode was sponsored by our patrons, with special thanks to Eric DeWurst, Steve Hungsberg, Jamie Gordon, and Edie. You can become a patron, too. Go to our webpage, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Click on the support link at the top of the page. You'll get our newsletter where I answer questions in depth and have access to our private Facebook group where we discuss all sorts of topics. Well, Patty, there's a lot to talk about uh, again this week. You know, I'm really focused on talking about the impeachment inquiry because, uh, look, it is the most important story. There's a lot of other stuff to talk about. Who would ever thought that, um, you know, I was on CNN last night talking about Rudy Giuliani, and it was like the third story or something because right. even though the oh, president— Oh, that guy. I forgot about him for a minute. Well, yeah, it's like the president's lawyer who also happens to be, you know— the former mayor of New York, the former United States attorney is under criminal investigation. It's like, eh, well, you know, we voted for impeach. You know, we voted uh, for an impeachment inquiry yesterday. I mean, there's so much going on. Uh, it's it's pretty insane. Well, and I, I think that people are still trying to catch up with things as they happen hour to hour when you're whether you're watching CNN or trying to you know follow the news stories in, in the New York Times uh, and following you on CNN, of course, and all of your appearances. How do you keep this together? How do you? Uh, stay focused on both your job, on your podcast, providing content, and then also, you know, uh, making commentary and, and making sure that people have the information that they need to understand what's happening. You know, it is hard sometimes. I was very busy the week that um, the Ukraine story broke, and I was I had a case I was trying, and so I literally was examining witnesses when these stories were breaking and you know when Pelosi made that, that statement originally well okay we got an impeachment inquiry going on now I I couldn't you know I found out about it on a lunch break because I was busy uh, cross-examining a witness I think at the time so it's hard um, but you know look these are important times and I feel very fortunate to have an opportunity to talk about these things I think it provides an important role. I'm I'm a little critical of some of the commentary out there. I think it's sometimes misleading to the public. So I'm trying my best to, you know, do as do what I can. And we've been doing more now. I mean, we just debuted last week the um the website and then, you know, with the Patreon uh system, we've got I'm doing more stuff. So now I'm 
writing a newsletter every email newsletter every week. I answer all these questions like how are all these investigations different? And we have this, uh, you know, the, some of the criminal investigations, civil and so forth. And we've got the uh, that new lawsuit that was filed by one of those aides trying to get the subpoena. Um, uh, you know, you know, to be released from complying with the House subpoena. So I talked about that, and then we have this fa- it's kind of secret Facebook group. So I've been giving my thoughts on the investigation and the investigators. I mean, there's an endless amount of topics. Uh, I one thing that I, I don't think people understand is I actually follow all these stories that I don't comment on. And what I've been doing in these groups is kind of giving kind of here's why I'm not talking about this. And here's like some of my behind the scenes stuff of like, this is why I think this is way more complicated and we should be careful about it. You mean like a random butt dials to reporters? (laughs) (laughs) What a strange thing. It it is strange. You know, it's funny because I do talk a lot with reporters. It's another thing people don't see is I have all these conversations with them that don't turn into anything. And, um, and we're talking about Rudy Giuliani, apparently, but dialing a reporter that he had spoken to earlier in the day. Yeah, well, I've had I've had journalists. I knew that he was doing that with reporters before that story broke. Like I had reporters tell me that Giuliani would dial them, and he was kind of you know character and this and that. And it was interesting to to kind of hear hear and see behind the scenes what he's like. I'd been on the studio with with Rudy Giuliani. I mean, he's just these. He's a mess, um, and I don't and I don't know how that happened. I didn't know the man before, but you know, there's very few people who have the elite lawyer credentials of someone like Giuliani, where you're like the United States Attorney in the Southern District of New York, and he had some big job in the Justice Department, like in Washington. I don't remember which one, but it was some big job. And then you go to being a guy who like is incriminating yourself on Twitter and butt-dialing reporters. And you, he got locked out of his own iPhone. He needed Apple. Even though our cybersecurity czar, he couldn't get into his own iPhone. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just like, what? I mean, it's just kind of like a comedy of errors, you know, like some, like, second uncle you have or something. I don't know. I mean, your phone doesn't do face recognition for you. I don't recognize this man. You cannot get into the phone. <laughs> well. I don't know what he was trying to, if he had put a password that he forgot or... He, he actually entered the wrong password 10 times in a row. <laughs> and if you do that, it does lock you out of the phone. But most and people are smart you. enough to stop trying after three or four. Exactly. It'll tell you you have seven attempts left. You know, that is basically the phone equivalent of deciding to hook up with the fraud guarantee guys as you're part of your legal practice. You know, exactly. I think, you know, my legal practice, I need some clients. I think I'm going to hook up with these fraud guarantee guys. I think that, that's, that's a, that was an equally brilliant idea. All right. Well, look, let's I want to get we better get to the point here yes. um, because the impeachment inquiry is public uh, now is going to be going into public eye. I thought it'd be very interesting. Now, this is a whole new phase is starting. The transcripts are getting released. Witnesses are going to be public to talk about what should this look like? What charges should they be focusing on? What witnesses should they bring in? How should they deal with the evidence with somebody I greatly respect? You know, a former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barb McQuaid. M- many of you see her on MSNBC all the time. She's on MSNBC more than I'm on CNN. She's on every night practically, um, you know, talking about all sorts of issues as an MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, and she's been a guest before uh, and somebody who's very insightful and smart. So let's bring her in. Excellent. Welcome back to the podcast, Barb. Thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, thanks, Renato. Glad to be here with you. 
Well, I, I always love talking with you, Barb, because we've had some moments where I really love talking sort of a trial strategy with you um, and how, you know, how to put together a case. And I think this, you know, now that we've entered the, this sort of public phase of the impeachment inquiry, where we're going to start, we're going to, all of us in the public are going to start seeing the witnesses and maybe some evidence if it hasn't all been stonewalled by the uh, Trump administration. I think there's a lot of interesting questions to answer. I'm interested in, in getting your thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it's definitely a new phase. One of the things I was heartened to see is that the questioning will include um, 45 minute long sets of questions by staff and you know, people like Barry Burke, who we saw questioning Corey Lewandowski before, you know, this five minutes back and forth between alternating between Democrats and Republicans, I think is a terrible way to conduct witness examinations. You can't get any momentum. The witness can kind of stall and run out the clock. Um, but as we saw with Barry Burke, when you give a trained professional cross-examiner a sufficient amount of time, um, he can really draw out some important information. So I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, and you know, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I noticed the same thing. And I think it would be helpful, Barb, if you can explain to our listeners why the five-minute uh, limitation in particular is a problem, because I think it is very hard. I actually had a hel- I helped a member write questions that for Michael Cohen in the five minutes. It was very hard for me to come up with a line of questioning within five minutes that would be effective. Yeah, so when you are developing a, a cross-examination, what you want to do is sort of set up the question by getting the witness to agree with your premise. You know, one of the things I thought Barry Burke did very effectively was he showed some video clips, for example, and he kind of let the video speak for itself. And then, you know, his questions were really just follow-up was, was that your statement? So, so you, you, know, you, you said this one day and that the other day, so you were lying and getting the witness to admit those kinds of things and things he really just can't wiggle out of once you've had a chance to show the, the contradictory statements. When you've only got five minutes, you don't have the opportunity to lay it out in that way. And the witnesses also know that you only have five minutes. So I think what we've seen is, uh, you know, Corey Lewandowski, again, as an example, would, would ask the, the questioner to read excerpts from the report and use up a good chunk of those five minutes and so before the person asking the questions has really had a chance to even get into a line of questioning, the time's up and they move on to somebody else and interrupts the flow and they get a different, uh, a different topic. And so I think having 45 minutes for somebody who is professional and focused is, is very helpful. The other thing that you see members of Congress do that's very frustrating, I think, is they're trying to score political points as much as they're trying to score legal ones. And so, uh, you know, they'll, they'll use these, try to uh, gotcha moments and one-line quips and things like that. I know I uh, was testifying uh, before the Judiciary Committee on Obstruction of Justice, and several of the Republican congressmen just used their time to um, make fun of the witnesses and say things like John Dean was one of the witnesses that day, and, you know, make little quips like, what is this, that 70s show? <laughs> Things like that, really clearly clamoring for their uh, soundbite for television news as opposed to really focusing seriously on questions. And so I think um, without that five-minute pattern and having a 45-minute duration, um, a lawyer who has training and experience in cross-examining witnesses will have the time to do an effective job. I, it, it'd be great if it were more, um, and, and we didn't have to hear from any of these members, in my opinion, 
but um, I think they probably can't resist having at least a little bit of, of a moment of their say. I, and I can't imagine what that experience was like. One thing, um, one thing that I would say too, Barbara, and I wonder if your experience is the same. Is I feel like a good cross examination builds on itself slowly over time. So what happens is you're going to ask questions and you're going to make small points and you're going to get the witness agreeing with things over time. And then, you know, you'll build to a point where it's like, you know, the the people who are listening, the jury or the judge are going to see over time, okay, we, you know, you're kind of building a mountain pebble by pebble. Um, and that's really, that takes time to do in an elegant way. Yes. And so, especially when you've got witnesses who are hostile to you, um, I think some of the witnesses that we've seen are people who are great patriots, people who are career diplomats, career State Department officials. But when you've got somebody who's got some exposure or maybe some loyalties to the president, like, say, a Gordon Sondland, who um, may have been a little uh, loose with the truth, not sure, it at least contradicts some of the things other people are saying, what you would do is exactly what you say, is walk through all the steps if you would agree with me that you were here before. You would agree with me that you testified under oath, and you would agree with me that that day you were uh, telling the truth. Um, And then you would also put in some of the testimony of other people and point out the contradictions and get him into a corner where he really has to either um, admit that he was lying or accuse the other people of lying. And that takes some work. You have to lay that foundation in a series of questions before you can get there. And so I agree with you that it's very difficult to do that effectively in five minutes. And as you can imagine, Barbara, a lot of our listeners have questions, and uh, one asks, uh, should they begin with the public stuff, like the obstruction of justice charges already outlined in the Mueller report, the public confessions about asking Ukraine for a favor while withholding funding, or should they begin with what has not yet been made public? You know, that's such a good question, because I think that um, this is, uh, unlike a, a legal case, as much a political case, because it's about impeachment it is, as it is a legal case. And I think you want to make sure that not only are you uh, putting the case on the record, but you are also um, making new revelations and advancing the investigation. So I think I might focus on some of the newer things um, to make sure that uh, you move the ball. At the same time, um, you don't want to waste everyone's time by putting um, the first pass at all these witnesses Uh, on public display, I imagine what you would do is interview them and then have them testify. Um, That's ideally the way to do it. You know, when you have witnesses who are testifying before a grand jury, for example, usually you have an opportunity to interview them first. If not, you put them in the grand jury and it can take a long time. But what ultimately gets presented at trial is a much smaller subset of those questions in that testimony. You don't have the 10-hour testimony, what you do is you take the best maybe one hour of that testimony and you ask those questions. And so I think you'd want to arrive at that same kind of product, if at all possible. Of course, we have some hostile witnesses who may not be appearing for voluntary interviews or any way other than um, through uh, a subpoena. So um, I think that's a really hard question, Patty, that you ask about how to unveil that But I do think it's important, one consideration that's different from your typical criminal case is the importance of advancing the investigation on a fairly quick timetable, because I think if you get too, uh, if it takes too long and we get too close to the 2020 election, President Trump's argument gets stronger that we should just wait for the election and let the voters decide. 
Yeah, and I think you make a really good point, Barb, that I think a lot of our listeners may not get when you're you're talking about how the the testimony gets distilled down, and it really shows, I think, why sort of the Republican process arguments aren't very strong, where they're talking about, for example, these depositions that were being conducted in private, because, of course, the purpose of those is to get a lot of background facts and determine whether or not any of these people are worth uh, a public hearing. You know, some of those witnesses may not have significant information. And, you know, it may be, for example, that when you interview all the witnesses, you'll learn something that would cause you to ask different questions of a witness, uh, you know, the second time around. So, you know, it's it's pretty common before an actual trial that you'll have, you know, multiple rounds. I usually prepare witnesses at least twice uh, before putting them on a trial. Yeah, sure. Because um, for one, it's just tedious and dull and lengthy for uh, a jury to watch the first go of it, right? To, it might take 10 hours to probe every aspect of uh, potential knowledge of a witness. Um, when you find out that they were only at two meetings, they weren't at 20 meetings, let's talk about those two. And you know that uh, the meetings lasted two hours, but there's really only five minutes of each of those meetings that's relevant for this consideration. So you focus on, you know, two five-minute periods, and, and that's what the testimony is about, as opposed to probing everything that they might know, it's a much more focused and efficient way to go about producing evidence. And you're so right about um, critics complaining about depositions occurring behind closed doors um, and suggesting that that somehow is a violation of due process. I think that's worth talking about for just a moment. Um, We are in the investigative stage. If this were a criminal case and we're being conducted before a grand jury, it would all be done in secret. The defendant has no right to be present, no right to cross-examine witnesses, no right to present evidence. And so the idea that somehow President Trump is having his due process rights violated by not being permitted those things at this stage is just wrong. Um, he'll get his opportunity, but that comes later at a trial before the Senate. And and I, I've see, I see that yesterday when the House passed some rules for what it's calling the next phase, the, um, the phase that's going to occur before the Judiciary Committee, where they might actually vote on articles of impeachment, they are allowing President Trump some opportunity to be present and to call witnesses and to ask questions. I think that's more than uh, they're required to give him as a matter of due process, but they are doing that. But the things that have happened in these early investigative stages um, is, is absolutely no violation of due process. And in fact, I would say that it's important that it be done quietly and secretly, because when you do it in public, It gives witnesses the opportunities to learn what other witnesses are saying and to tailor their testimony accordingly. And so one of the reasons you conduct grand jury investigations in private is to protect the integrity of the investigation. Yeah, I agree. I agree with 100 percent. No, it's not unusual. I agree with you most of the time. I I agree 100 percent with what you're saying, Barb. That's exactly right. Um, I, I would also say that, you know, one one thing that you often, another reason why you often conduct these things in secret or that we have grand, secret grand jury proceedings is to protect people who are innocent. And I will would note that, you know, one thing that happened yesterday is a lot of Trump's allies uh, online uh, and offline, and it, unfortunately it's picked up even by some lawmakers like Rand Paul, uh, were trying to publish uh, and, and publicize the name of a person that they believe is the whistleblower. They don't have proof that this is the whistleblower. They just have, you know, a, a suspicion or hunch that this is the whistleblower, and they're ruining some guy's life. Even if he is, uh, the whistleblower didn't do anything wrong, didn't break any laws, as far as we know. 
um, it, it was just very irresponsible, and it's it shows what the importance of having these processes be private, even for people who aren't whistleblowers. You know, you you know, ruining somebody's life or trying to to um, you know expose details about them until or unless that's necessary is really uh, something that uh, shouldn't be done. Yeah, our whistleblower protection laws are designed to protect whistleblowers from legal consequences and from retaliation in the workplace. The idea that there are public officials who are trying to expose the name of the whistleblower is designed only to hurt him, to discredit him, to undermine him, so that people can uh, dig for dirt and somehow try to uh, expose biases that he has, or even to chill other people from coming forward. If you know that you're going to get right through the coals if you come forward and report misconduct within the government, uh, they're sending a very strong message that you should not do that. And people will tend to keep their mouth shut if they fear repercussions for doing what is the right thing, doing their duty, coming forward when they observe something that's wrong. I mean, that's what people in the intelligence community are, are trained to do. If you see that, something that you think is fraud, waste, or abuse, please don't go to the press. Please don't say it out loud. Here's the process. We will protect you. We will have your back. Report it up the chain of command, and we will deal with it appropriately. That's every, That's exactly what this whistleblower has done. And to now expose his name um, to punish him and to chill others is, is really um, wrong and contrary to the notions of transparency in government. Well, let's talk about you know how how you figure out witness order. I think you know that's something that it, that I think both of us in in our experience have had to grapple with, uh, and I think it's going to be important for Democrats here. So usually. Uh, I'll just uh, tell people, so you know, how I, when I'm trying a case, how I think about witness order. I mean, I usually try to start with a witness who tells the story, gives a, a background, helps people, uh, the ju- usually let's say the jury understand uh, what this case is really about, and also somebody who's very solid. In other words, somebody who's not going to be have a devastating cross examination. You know, for me. If I was the Democrats, I would consider starting with somebody like Taylor, who really can tell the whole story. It's a very compelling witness. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the cross-examination of that guy would look like because he seems like a, a, a straight shooter to me. Yeah, same here, you know, in terms of, of strategy. You want to start strong and end strong. And to the extent you have any witnesses who have baggage or problems, uh, sandwich them in the middle. So, you know, cooperators maybe who have important testimony but um, who are – receiving something of value in exchange for their testimony, like a recommendation for a lenient sentence. Sometimes those types of witnesses are viewed more skeptically. So, you know, they always taught us at um, the National Advocacy Center at the Department of Justice the rules of primacy and recency so that when a a jury is um, thinking about what they've heard, the, the first witness makes a big impression, as you just said, someone who can tell the story and do so persuasively, isn't going to be terribly damaged on cross-examination. Um, and then recent, recency, I want to end strong. So when they go back into the jury room, they've got this impression that the case is strong and that's what's freshest on their mind. So yeah, I think Bill Taylor was appears, you know, again, all we saw were these opening statements, but he appears to be someone, career, public servant, military, West Point graduate, State Department, um, who was in a position to have information based on his communications with Gordon Sondland. He was on those text messages um, and phone calls. Uh, another really good one this week was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman um, on the National Security Council in 
the Trump White House and a specialist on Ukraine who listened on the call and said, this transcript is missing some key facts. I think that's a person who could be very persuasive and very important. And, you know, maybe in the middle is where you put people who are um, a little bit less predictable, like a Gordon Sondland, who might have some allegiance to President Trump. Even uh, Kurt Volker, um, not quite sure what to make of him. Um, his his record on this, I think, is a little bit mixed. He was one of the so-called three amigos, though he resigned before testifying and uh, seems to have done the right thing since then. So, you know, those people who have potential problems, I think I would probably put in the middle of the case and uh, start and end with some stronger witnesses. Yeah, uh, you know, and I certainly I follow those same rules, you know, not only um, – the, kind of ordering witnesses beginning and end, but also even within a, a particular witness's questioning. I start uh, the, the questioning in a strong note and end on a very strong note. Our human brains uh, tend to uh, remember the first and last things uh, better. They make a bigger impact on us. I would say that, um, you know, here I think part of the issue is also with the trial, you're want, you want to have the story laid out early, and then any problematic witnesses, you want the jury to see to get a, a, the context necessary to understand those problems beforehand. So to me, you know, wherever Sondland is going to be, you want to have the witnesses who are going to contradict Sondland come beforehand so it's so that, you know, the, the public can see, okay, well, when Sondland says X, you know, we have to take it with a grain of salt because we've already heard from witnesses, you know, A mm-hmm. and B who have said something different. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now you got to think through all those things. And so, you know, that's really what happens at the, the trial presentation, and so you know, very different from what we've been talking about with regard to uh, the deposition testimony, which is more of a um, learning process, an investigative process, as opposed to the presentation stage, which comes at the trial. And here, our jurors will be the Senate, which makes it also a little bit different. But I think not only the Senate, but the public, um, the senators to some extent, I think, are there as representatives of the people of their state. And so, if public sentiment um, becomes uh, favorable to impeachment, I think the senators will feel an obligation and maybe even a political necessity to go along. So the presentation of the evidence in a way that's powerful, uh, compelling, and persuasive will matter an awful lot in the end. So all those techniques you're talking about um, are going to be important. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Barb, is that the senators are the jurors. Ultimately, I mean, I and maybe this is the cynical part of me, I think that politicians do whatever is in their self-interest most of the time. And so I think they're going to look at whatever what direction the wind's blowing for them on, you know, amongst, let's say, the Republican base. But I think what happens in the House, even though it's technically not the trial, that's going to matter for moving public opinion. So wherever, however the House does this public testimony, if I was in the House or I was advising them, I would tell them, you you got to put this on as if it's a trial, and your audience is the American people. And if you can't move public opinion, uh, you're not going to be able to make your case in the Senate. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, one of the things that I think we saw with the Mueller investigation is, despite some, uh, what I thought at least, were some very compelling facts uh, with regard to obstruction of justice, um, it did not seem to capture the public's attention. And I think a big part of that was the way it was presented. We had William Barr telling everyone that there was no collusion and no obstruction. And then the House did a few sort of halting uh, hearings to get that information into the public domain. 
using Robert Mueller himself was not a particularly good witness, uh, or at least not a particularly compelling witness. Um, and it kind of petered out. And so I think that experience demonstrates the importance of getting the story out, uh, making sure the public understands that not only what happened, but why it's harmful and doing it without too much time passing. I think you can lose momentum. So much happens in the world. And President Trump is such a master of distracting communications that um, you have to uh, make sure that what you're doing is commanding public attention. Um, And so it needs to happen with some urgency and with some strategic thought, as you're discussing. Yeah, you know, one thing I that uh, if I had to say the 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 number one insight that I've had in trying complicated cases is that whichever side is telling the simple story wins usually. And and when I try very complicated cases, whether they've been trading cases, bank fraud cases, whatever it is, uh, I usually try to find a way to make my story the simple story that I'm telling and force the other guy to tell a complicated story. And one of the issues, I think, with the the Mueller obstruction piece is it's a complicated story to tell. There's all these different pieces and episodes. It's not clear which ones, you know, you're going to run with there. I mean, there's some disagreement about that, but, you know, they don't all fit together, and there's a lot of backstory that need to be told. And as you point out, uh, Barb, you know, the way in which it was told by Robert Mueller was very accurate and precise and complete in many ways on uh, in terms of obstruction of justice. But that doesn't lend itself to simplicity, a very complicated report and dense Whereas here, it's a very simple story. It's like a you know a few page long transcript. There, the, the story around it's simpler. It's a quid pro quo. He's trying to dig up dirt and trade our tax dollars uh, in for the foreign aid for the dirt. Um, that's simple for people to understand. And I think, you know, in many ways, that has been the reason that this story is uh, taken off the way it has. Yeah, you know, again, going back to the training that <clears throat> you get at the Department of Justice, um, every new lawyer goes to a two-week-long trial advocacy course where they learn all of the component parts of a trial and also um, some trial strategy points. And I remember one of the things that they told us in, in our very first session, and it was that, you know, because of the resources and because of the investigative capabilities and because of the grand jury process that gives you a preview, the government usually has very strong cases, the federal government. And so the government usually loses cases, not because the jury didn't believe its case, but because the jury didn't understand its case. Uh, sometimes the cases are very complicated, and as you say, you really need to simplify them. And they said one of the best techniques to use is um, to uh, write out for yourself and consider using this as the first line of your opening statement. This case is about blank, and you need to be able to say that in as few words as possible. So with this case, I would say this case is about a president who put his self-interest above the interest of the country. He asked for a foreign government to provide help in defeating a candidate for president in a U.S. election. And in exchange for that help, he withheld military aid that Congress had deemed to be in the best interest of the United States national security so that Ukraine, an ally in Europe, could fend off Russian aggression in Europe. It was in violation of our foreign policy and our national security. And President Trump did those things because he cared more about getting elected than he did about protecting the country. I think if you could frame it that way, as opposed to 448 pages of Robert Mueller's uh, 
nuance and detail, it becomes a much more compelling case. And to just keep hammering, you know, that that's the theme here and that's the story. Yeah, I, and that sounded to me like the beginning of a Barb McQuaid opening statement. It sounded very good. Uh, and I imagine I'm written on the fly. I, I will say that, you know, to me, I mean, you could always you could summarize it in five words. In ten words, it's a simple story, but the way you laid it out is very complete, almost very complete in a way in telling the, the what not only what the story is, but why it matters. When I say story here, and I keep using the term story, it's not that it's, you know, sometimes that it has a connotation that it's not true. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, you know, is a, when you're putting on a case, um, you know, just the, for the listeners to make it crystal clear, you, you're, the job of the person trying the case is to, is to present it in a way that's understandable, in the way, as you just explained, Barb, you know, put, you know, in a way that um, is, is simple and clear and people can understand. You know, one thing I think is an issue uh, for Democrats is, you know, you mentioned that Trump is a distraction, Barb. I think also just the sheer volume of scandals and problems and news that uh, is out there uh, relating to the Trump administration. There's a lot of fatigue out there. And, you know, it is going to be important for Democrats to break through that and help the public see, okay, no, there's something really bad here that is not hard to understand, and we need to do something about it. Yeah, and, um, you know, I don't know whether President Trump is uh, deliberate in this effort or if it's just sort of the way he rolls, but I, I think all of the uh, the, the news, the, the statements, the crazy tweets, all of it combines to create that feeling of fatigue where people who are busy with their lives just tend to throw up their hands and say, I can't make sense of any of it. They're seeing people defending him and people criticizing him. And it's easy, just as, as you see with lawyers, when they take the bait and uh, argue with another lawyer, they all sort of look like uh, irresponsible children. And you say, you know, I, I, I can't sort out who's at fault here. Um, you're all distasteful, and I'm just going to tune out and not pay attention to any of it because I'm busy with my own life over here. I think that is one of the either um, intentional strategies or collateral consequences of the way President Trump conducts himself. And I think it's not good for democracy. I think we want people paying attention and engaged. Uh, We need an informed electorate to be able to make the decisions that run our government. And so I think we have to um, resist that natural tendency to sort of tune out all of this stuff because it just seems so crazy and so distasteful. And so um, I think people like like you and I need to keep talking about it. And um, I think the House and uh, ultimately Senate will need to keep their eyes on the ball. You know, this actually really brings me to a point that I think is uh, something I think reasonable minds can disagree about, uh, which is, you know, what to include in an impeachment inquiry. In other words, you know, there. I've had a number of people. Uh, there, there's some. We got some questions from listeners um, for this episode, but I've been getting a lot of feedback uh, now for for weeks from people who are like, "Well, wh- why don't we include the obstruction of justice from the Mueller report in this impeachment inquiry? Why isn't there other stuff? You know, there's some people who want emoluments and other things included." And I had written a column, I mean, a month ago, in which I, I used, I kind of paraphrased what I told you a moment ago, Barbara, about keep, having the simple story, in that I argue very strongly for keeping it simple and just going with Ukraine. 
that's how I would do this if I was uh, advising the House. I'd say, look, we have a very simple story. I'd have the Barb McQuaid opening statement, and that would be my that would be my story. It would be this this one piece in 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 kind of make it something that was very easy to digest. How do you feel about that, about including other things? Um, I, I do agree with you, although I have a cautionary tale about it that you can go too far. Um, but I, I agree with you that ordinarily, as I said before, um, the government loses cases when the jury doesn't understand it. If you have too much going on, it can get really complicated, and it can make it very confusing for jurors to understand the story. It can also fatigue them and wear them down um, to the point that they're no longer sitting on the edge of their seat and listening to the story. We had a case um, that we prosecuted against a um, very high-profile public official in the Eastern District of Michigan, and we had such a mountain of evidence and so many corrupt schemes that we had to work really hard to cut them. And you know, the people who investigated them, uh, you know, found all of them so compelling it became very difficult. And we cut it down to I think about. 10 schemes, which was probably even then too many um, for presentation at trial. Um, but we had to keep it uh, keep it simple. Otherwise, the fear was we would lose the jury. And so I agree with you generally that you want to keep it focused like that. Now, I will tell you another example of a case that was brought by DOJ attorneys against a former prosecutor in our district for obstruction of justice. And there were facts that had um, a, a number of troubling facts that could have been put into the case. But in the effort to just keep it really clean, it also had some classified information. And so that opened some uh, you know, cans of worms that they wanted to avoid. So instead, they charged it as one single count of obstruction of justice. And uh, the jury acquitted. And afterwards, the jury said something to the effect of, you know, we thought he was handling such a complicated matter that and he probably did do something wrong in this one instance, but it seemed like... Um, it would be unfair to hold them accountable for just making this one mistake. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, maybe they made a miscalculation there. If they'd included additional facts, uh, they could have provided some context for a jury to realize that, you know, there was, there was more to the story there. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's not always one size fits all, but I do agree with you that you, you need to um, uh, favor simplifying um, for all the reasons that we've stated. Yeah, that's inter- those are really good, uh, interesting uh, stories. By the way, I, I should do. I should need to have a, tr- a trial strategy podcast uh, to discuss with you. Uh, some interesting stuff. I will have to say that, you know, with, regarding the the latter example, you know, one thing that is often f- frustrating in a case, and and really it's an important defense strategy. Now that I try cases on the defense side, is you know, whenever uh, you know, one thing that one a feature of a trial is that things get sanitized. In other words. You know, a lot of things that are not relevant to the charges are are fa- filtered out. Whether it's potentially a past criminal history, somebody could have, you know, robbed ten banks in the past, uh, but they're on trial for this particular bank robbery, and that's all the evidence that's in, or or other things. And you know, when you when you when you simplify a case down and have a single incidence or an, a single incident. Uh, jurors can think, okay, well, it's a one-time thing, and you know, maybe this is a mistake, or they didn't quite. You know, I'm not 100 percent sure that this, you know, that this person had the intent or knowledge or whatever. I think one difference here for um, for this particular scenario, which is different in a lot of ways, impeachment inquiry is the public already knows a lot about Donald Trump. 
the senators know everyone knows a lot about Donald Trump already. And it it's kind of like the context that I think this is like is it's sentencing. In other words, you know, one thing that prosecutors don't worry about is, well, you know, will the judge um, you know, not have a full context at sentencing? Because even if you get that, if you got a conviction in that, that case you mentioned, if you had gotten the conviction on the one charge, the judge would consider everything about that person uh, at sentencing. And here I feel like, you know, if, if, if you get enough to, to kind of prove your, your case on this one point, I feel like people know enough about the rest of what Donald Trump has done to be able to factor that in to some extent. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that, um, as I said before, the jurors are the Senate, um, and in some ways they're also the sentencer, right, the sentencing judge, because removal is automatic upon conviction. Um, and unlike a jury who really only hears that which the judge as the gatekeeper allows them to hear, they don't know anything else about this person. The person is a blank slate, presumed innocent. They don't know any of history. Um, they don't know about uh, you know anything outside of the evidence that was admissible at, at the trial. Um, whereas the senators who are the jurors here, they know all about the Mueller report, uh, those that have bothered to read it. Um, and so I think President Trump comes um, without maybe the same presumptions of innocence maybe that a typical defendant has. I think all of that baggage becomes part of the story, especially in light of the fact that this Ukraine call comes on July 25th, the very next day after Robert Mueller had testified about um, the Russia investigation, as if Trump, you know, why, he even mentions Mueller in there, that he testified yesterday and he was, <laughs> he was terrible and his performance was awful, yeah. as if Trump was somehow empowered by that, that, wow, look, I got away with it the first time, and so here I go again. Um, I think the senators are allowed to you know, think about those things. They don't have the same kinds of constraints that jurors and judges have in criminal cases. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think that's it's going to be an interesting dynamic here is is the fatigue that we talk about. Does that work? You know, sometimes that works in Trump's favor. Like you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, people, you know, he always has something else around the corner and you get you. It's hard to keep track of it all. Helping Trump in some ways, it may, it may hurt him in a certain respect as well. You know, a Barb, one subject I wanted to raise, you know, there is one of our listeners had a really compelling set of questions about John Eisenberg, who is the lead lawyer for the NSC, the National Security Council. Um, and he's also, I think, Deputy White House Counsel. And I, I want to say before we get into this, I want to disclose the fact that John Eisenberg was my law school classmate and, in fact, was a good friend of mine in law school. Uh, he was in, you know, we were both articles editors in the Yale Law Journal together and would sit and talk, and I knew him very, very well. Um, and it's kind of surprising me uh, to, for me to see the position that he's gotten himself into uh, here, and I've kind of you know, not commented on it, um, you know, partly because of all of this disclaimer that I feel like I have to make. You know, and the questions that, that this listener asked, which I think are very good, is sort of, does he have legal jeopardy for moving the, um, the uh, calls into that uh, code word server? Uh, and can he testify, given that he, you know, what is, what is the fact that he's a lawyer for the NSC? Does that make it, um, um, you know, uh, impossible for the, or make it difficult for the Dems to force him to answer certain questions? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, I have been reading about his conduct in the last couple of days and growing concerned about his his conduct. Um, I think, number one, on the privilege question, really interesting. 
um, you know, there's an attorney-client privilege and lawyers cannot testify about things that would violate that privilege. But it's important to remember that the privilege does not cover everything a lawyer says or does. The privilege is limited to communications between a lawyer and client for the purpose of obtaining legal advice. So for people on the National Security Council who asked him questions about what should I say, what should I do, um, those kinds of communications would be privileged. But his own conduct in moving this transcript or summary of the phone call um, from its normal place of storage to this special code word protected storage space, I think that raises some questions about his conduct. I don't think that's likely to go into his privileged communications uh, to clients. I think it's about his own conduct, um, and therefore I think probably not privileged. Now, he might be able to invoke the Fifth Amendment, his right against self-incrimination, if what he did was illegal, um, which would, you know, when you're a public figure like that, uh, can look pretty bad if you are saying, I think I might have some criminal exposure here for what I did. Um, but there's uh, there's nothing that says he's limited and can't invoke the Fifth Amendment, so he could do that as well. Um, and then even if there were some statements that were um, privileged, there is, as you know, Renato, the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege, and so you can't hide behind the privilege if you are conspiring with others to commit a crime. And so if what they were talking about was uh, their strategy for concealing this conversation from the public, um, then that could be a basis for piercing the privilege. Um, so a lot to unpack there. Really good question by um, the listener. And I think he is scheduled to come testify um, maybe as soon as next week. So I think that's going to be a really interesting showdown, whether he shows up and if so, what questions he will answer, um, if any, and what he has to say about all of that. I agree. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna be watching for sure for all sorts of reasons, and you know I thought that was a, v- a very good answer. I mean, a couple of things that I would add. One is that you know in in the federal court of appeals in in D.C. where you know which uh, you know is sort of legally where where things would go if there was ever a, a fight about privilege. You know, there's a a, a, a case that arose during the Clinton. Uh, uh, investigation by Ken Starr in which the court made it clear that, you know, that, for example, the White House counsel, there's the 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 um, need for, um, you know, criminal uh, investigation for that information outweighs any privilege, uh, be, you know, between the White House counsel and the, and the president and other executive branch officials. Now here, um, this isn't a criminal proceeding. Impeachment's slightly different. I don't know how a court would come out. Certainly, I, I w- would I would be surprised if John Eisenberg didn't assert privilege in many areas. Uh, but if it was ultimately litigated, I think it's it's a weaker he'd be in a weaker position um, to be uh, protecting statements via privilege than he would if it was a private litigant. And the other thing that I would just say too is that the reputational issues that come with an attorney in this context um, are important. You know, I have prosecuted and convicted attorneys. I've also represented attorneys who were uh, involved and caught up in criminal investigations. And, you know, they are often not willing to do things that people are um, usually, you know, people usually would do when they have some 
legal jeopardy. And for example, taking the fifth, I think for somebody like John, who's a, a very uh, accomplished lawyer, I think that would have a significant impact on his career. So I um, I think I, I would think that uh, he would, uh, you know, avoid taking the fifth if at all possible. Yeah, um, you know, President Trump himself has criticized those who take the Fifth Amendment, and so it would be interesting how people who work in his administration would feel about it. Um, and you know, it's it's not supposed to carry with it any uh, symbolic disgrace. It's there; it's a protection that exists to protect our innocence. But I think when you deal in this world of politics um, and you have to worry about not only um, your legal rights, but political appearances. Um, and as you said, when you're a lawyer, um, your reputation for integrity, and your character and fitness to be a member of the bar. Um, I think those things carry with them, um, you know, some sort of uh, potential badge of shame that you have to think about. For sure. You know, one one other thing I wanted to to talk to you about, Barb, is you know I had I'd written a column I think last week saying that I didn't think Trump had a defense left. Um, and this week, what I've seen is a number of Republicans start. I mean, they they couch it differently than I do. I mean, my my take is he has no defense left. He should you know beg for mercy uh, and you know try to negotiate the best resolution of this that he can. The Republicans I think have been starting to embrace. I mean, we've seen. Jonah Goldberg, Peggy Noonan, Andrew McCarthy, all these Republicans saying, you know what? Yeah, he did it. Uh, There is a quid pro quo. Let's stop denying it. It makes us look bad. It hurts his cause. It suggests that if there is a quid pro quo and there is one that it's impeachable, let's just argue that this is an impeachable conduct. Do you think at some point in the middle of this thing that that there's any chance that Trump's going to adopt that? I mean, I feel like psychologically, he may be incapable of doing what um, what I think was probably his wisest strategy. Yeah, and his strategy always seems to be deny and attack. Um, I don't know that he personally ever has to change his strategy. I think it's the people who are in Congress who are uh, his defenders who need to try to make sense of all of this. Um, and, and, and they evolve. Um, and, you know, I know in, in court cases, defendants can sometimes present um, alternative theories. Um, you know, I didn't do it, but if I did, it was consensual or something, something along those lines. Um, but I, I think that the, the public wants, you know, yearns for the truth. And when you start telling shifting stories, it really undermines that credibility. And so, um, I mean, I, I agree with you. You know, first it was... Um, to attack the, the whistleblower. This didn't happen. He's biased. Um, it's secondhand information. It's hearsay, you know, et cetera. And, and then, you know, we see the, the summary of the call um, where it's clear that it, it's exactly what he said. So now, you know, forget about the attack on the whistleblower. It turns out he's right. Um, but there's no quid pro quo. I mean, I don't know how you read that thing without saying, of course there's a quid pro quo. And then as facts have filled in, with testimony from people like Bill Taylor um, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, um, you know, we're seeing information that does tend to support that theory that there's a quid pro quo. So now it's, well, yes, there was a quid pro quo, but that's not impeachable. Well, how come you didn't say it was unimpeachable way back when the whistleblower first came to the door and said your first instinct was to say he's, he's lying? 
Um, and how come it wasn't your first instinct when you were saying there was no quid pro quo? I think that the public um, doesn't buy it. If, if when the story shifts too much, um, it makes you wonder, um, what's, what's the truth here? It just seems like this is the, the most convenient defense that you have available. And so when it comes to President Trump, um, I think he'll say whatever he feels like he needs to say under the circumstances to benefit himself. And so if he perceives that it's to say, sure, I did it, but it's, uh, it's not impeachable, um, then he'll do that. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, his, his defense is, is to go on the offense and to attack his accusers and attack others, attack Biden, um, anybody he can, uh, so that the conversation is about that and not about him. Yeah, I um I I don't know whether psychologically he's the type of person who could admit wrongdoing or admit fault. He's that doesn't seem to be his his thing. Um you know, I I will say that uh I will say that, you know, in a trial um which is a very different context, if in your opening statement you said there's no quid pro quo, you know, and that was your big theme, and then there's clearly a quid pro quo, and then you're arguing something different in closing, you're screwed. Um, but in yeah. this context, you know, maybe he's conditioned these people. I mean, I, I have many relatives who are Trump supporters, and I, you know, I, I communicate with them and others on a regular basis who the, the logical mental, mental leaps that they're able to make uh, astound me, and it may be that they'll just he'll switch the story and they'll they'll be fine with that and the republican senators will just fall in line i don't know yeah i don't know you know there's certainly a segment of the population who will not be swayed from him i, I don't know if there's anything he could do that would change their minds um i mean you know maybe murder <laughs> but uh you know someone explained to me recently it's sort of like asking you to change your allegiance to sports teams or to change your religion. Like, it's just not going to happen. You can tell me anything you want uh, that's bad about, um, you know, my my beloved Detroit Tigers, Michigan football, or my Christian faith, and it's probably not going to shake me, you know? It's probably not going to change my belief. It might change my opinion about some aspects of those things, but it, it's just too ingrained to to shake, and I, and I wonder to what extent Trump supporters feel the same way, that um, no matter how vulgar, how deceitful, how despicable his conduct, uh, he's their guy. He's their horse, and they're riding him. Well, as a White Sox fan, I was going to make a joke about the Tigers, but you made such a good <laughs> point, uh, Barb, that I can't. Uh, although, I, who am I to talk? It's like the shortest, uh, you know, we're, we're, both, we're both pretty bad uh, teams this, this past year. But I would say I agree with you. I think that for some of these folks, they they may never change. Um, and you know, I think the issue here may not necessarily be the result, which may be preordained. It may, you know, getting twenty Republican senators to vote to remove Trump is a difficult uh, thing. Um, but what impact it would have in the Trump presidency? What impact it would have in the the next election and so forth? You know, one story that came out, and I had a, I fielded some questions from reporters on this. And I'm curious what your take is, Barb. You know, there was this story that came out about um, senators receiving, you know, fundraising. There was fundraising by the Trump campaign on behalf of certain Republican senators who, you know, have re-election coming up. And I was asked, um, you know, whether or not um, this would be bribery or something like that. And what I explained, and I'm curious if you agree, is that you know, this is the way what I understood it to be was sort of like 
you know, what happens often in politics, which is, you know, the NRA raises money for politicians who vote for who vote against gun regulation. And that is, um, you know, they know that, uh, you know, that their money uh, probably helps influence these people or the expectation of that money. Uh, and vice versa, the, the politicians know if they vote against gun regulation that the NRA is going to, you know, be supporting them in the future. But there's never an explicit discussion or quid pro quo about that. And that's why that stuff doesn't get charged as bribery. And what you really need is to have some exchange of a public act, like a vote, in exchange for something of value for it to be bribery. But I think there there clearly were, based on my understanding from the reporters, that were many, many former prosecutors were suggesting otherwise. I'm curious what your what your take is. No, I completely agree with you. I, you know, it, it looks bad. It looks like he's <laughs> trying to curry favor. But, you know, that's that's politics. That's our political system. Um, it, it does have to be a quid pro quo, um, you know, exchanging a thing of value for taking a particular official act. Um, and that even got further narrowed in that McDonald case, the former governor of Virginia, where the Supreme Court said even a meeting, you know, arranging meetings and supporting um, someone who, who's paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars does not count as bribery because hosting meetings and making introductions is just uh, normal constituent service. It's not an official act. And so, in fact, um, one of the aspects of this Trump-Ukraine scandal, I think, probably falls outside the realm of official act is that Ukraine was interested in a meeting at the White House. And that was one of the things they wanted in exchange for this um, uh, uh, investigation, in addition to um, uh, the military aid. That was one of the things they wanted. I don't think that could hold up in a criminal case for bribery as an official act. Now, of course, we're talking about impeachment, which is broader than that. But um, the official act have to be and they even describe it, you know, taking discretionary action on a matter, a decision. And so just generally um, uh, making that contribution because you want to have a good relationship with that person, you want to have access to that person, you want to support uh, their their candidacy in general because they tend to support your cause, all of that is permissible in our system. So I don't think this would count as bribery. Yeah, often what's kind of, what's awful is sometimes what's legal and not what's a, what's criminal. You know, what's not criminal, right? I mean, in other words, there's it's an awful feature of our system that that this is kind of the way the 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 sausage is made. Um, people are right to be concerned about it, and and this is awful behavior, uh, and it's concerning that you know senators are being influenced potentially by this. Uh, by these contributions, but I think it's unfortunately a feature of the system. Yeah, we would have, um, uh, just to finish the thought, we would frequently have people come to us with what they thought was perhaps a bribe scenario um, that felt maybe somewhere between these examples that we were discussing. And I remember as we sat around the table, what we would often say the question would be, is it, it's awful, but is it lawful? Is it crime or is it slime? That was, you know, sort of the, the joke, but those are the buzzwords where we, we knew that we had to kind of think about, um, is this something that our system just, just tolerates because that's how it works, or is this um, a bribe under the statute? Um, and you have to, you know, look at it um, with with that legal lens about the, the elements of bribery if it's, if it's in the criminal arena. Exactly right. And, those, and that's, uh, those are the tough calls that you have to make as a prosecutor. It's this, of course... You know, in a in a um, in a broader sense, it's the it, I think it underlies the impeachment inquiry. Yeah, I'm curious, Barb. You know, you talked we talked a little bit about John Eisenberg. What are you kind of 
looking forward now in the weeks, you know, in the weeks to come, what are you expecting to see or, or looking forward to be to, you know, looking out for in the impeachment inquiry? Well, I think one really interesting witness coming ahead is John Bolton. Mm. John Bolton was the national security advisor and, um, he seems to be someone who was very alarmed by what was happening. You know, d- demanded that a meeting stop when he heard this discussion raised about it, investigating Biden. Um, he resigned shortly thereafter. Um, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but was this a reason for his resignation? Uh, he was someone who was certainly very involved in all of this and was aware of what was going on. So. I would very much want to hear from him. He has been subpoenaed. He's scheduled to testify next week. And so um, we'll see if that goes forward. But I think that'll be an interesting one. The other really interesting character in all of this is Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> um, I don't know how valuable his, his own testimony might be because I don't know how credible he would be as a witness. But um, you know, he was right in the heart of all of this, what witnesses are describing as uh, shadow diplomacy, um, working, you know, he had meetings in um, Warsaw, Paris, Madrid, Ukraine, and New York um, with Ukrainian officials about all of this. Um, you know, what were you doing, Rudy? What were you up to? What was what was the deal? Um, as I said, I, I, I don't know how much credibility he has as a witness, but I think his role in all of this is really interesting. You know, if, if this were simply legitimate uh, dealings with an ally, why do you need Rudy Giuliani to get involved? Why not use your trained State Department officials who have appropriate clearances and are complying with government regulations. Um, why do you have your personal lawyer show up and um, engage in these negotiations? The whole thing smells bad, and um, I want to know more about his role. For sure. I have to say, if I was representing Rudy Giuliani, he would be taking the fifth. If I had to chain him to his, <laughs> chain him to his office, I would keep it, keep, do everything in my power to keep him from uh, – Get, you know, getting into that microphone and and and, and giving testify. <laughs> of course, I would be taking his phone away and keeping him from tweeting as well. Um, but yeah, I have to say, John Bolton in particular, I don't know what to make of him and his role here. Clearly, somebody who's not just a good go along kind of guy uh, had strong feelings about this subject, and um, you know, is an independent person who clearly thinks about you know his reputation and so forth. But yeah. You know, it's not like he did a lot active to thwart this, right? It wasn't like he was sounding alarm bells or marching into the White House or, you know, any threatening to resign if this went forward. He kind of said, I'm not going to – this is somebody else is going to do, do this, not me. I'm not involved. Yeah, he said something like, what was it? I, I don't know what kind of drug deal. Yeah. <laughs> Giuliani and Mulvaney are cooking up, but I'm, I'm not in it. I'm not part of it. <laughs> yeah, not – which is which is something, right? I mean, it's quite a statement. Like you know, you 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 know, there's something really bad and illegal going on. And what what are you going to do? You're going to put your head down and be like, I, you know, don't tell me any of the details. Well, well, look, Barb, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, just I always uh, enjoy in, uh, speaking with you and learn a lot from you. Oh, thank you very much, Renato. Same here. I always enjoy the conversation. You have great insights on trial strategy and legal practice, so it's a great uh, pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.
am Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.